welcome to series five, episode 11 of the Prompted by Nature podcast. How have you been? Uh, so in bulk has just passed here in the UK and I can feel the very tangible promise of the lighter months slowly creeping up. Um, the mornings are brighter earlier and it's staying lighter in the evenings for just a little bit longer than usual. Uh, the full snow moon has just passed um, and it's been incredible in the early mornings. It just, it's got an almost solar glare. It's been so bright and illuminating and just beautiful here. Um, I'm in the midst of planning my upcoming e-zine in time for the equinox, as well as working on a few pieces that I've been feeling really inspired by. So I hope that wherever you are, you are feeling equally as inspired by nature. So before we get on to the episode, the action point for today. So this one is more UK uh, centred. Apologies for anyone in Europe or the wider world. Um, this one is about uh, mobile phones. And no, this isn't sponsored. This is just something I found and wanted to share. So I'm in the process of um, updating my contract and I'm with a certain provider and I was talking to a friend and she was like, oh yeah, I'm going to go over to EcoTalk. And I was like, what's this? And it's essentially a mobile phone company that has um, like morals, <laughs> which is really cool. Um, and they use the profits from customers' phone bills to buy land, which they then give back to nature through the RSPB. It's well worth a look. Um, it's ecotalk.co.uk I'll put it in the show notes if you're due to um, change your contract and you it's only sim only so you need to have a handset um, and for that I've been looking at Fairphone can't afford it at the moment but one day it's like in the in my like if I hadn't have had a vision board for mobile phones it would be that um, but I'm keeping my handset so yeah it's sim only um, yeah so have a look if you are due to renew your contract so on to today's episode. Today I'm speaking with the completely wonderful illustrator Ellen Manon. Ellen is a freelance illustrator from Wales now based in Cornwall. Her work is inspired by the natural world, folklore and folk traditions, particularly those Welsh and Cornish. A passion for storytelling and the celebration for the protection of our natural world has been a constant drive within her work. Through the power of imagination and imagery, she aims to deepen our connection to the natural environment, reflecting stories of the landscape in a world that's often focused on the modern and material. And if you don't already follow Ellen on social media, you absolutely must. Her artwork is just incredible. It's ethereal, yet earthy. Oh, it's just gorgeous. So in this conversation, we discuss Ellen's creative journey, how her distinctive style emerged, the place of storytelling in her work and the boundary between self and art, finding the balance between work and creativity, charging what you're worth as a creative, which I know is going to be uh, pertinent to some of you, Ellen's creative process, uh, the impact that her early encounters with nature and storytelling had on her future work and so much more. This conversation was so rich and I loved speaking with Ellen about her incredible artwork. You can find her on her website www.ellen-manon so that's E-L-I-N hyphen M-A-N-O-N dot com and on Instagram at Ellen underscore Manon underscore illustration. I've put all the links in the show notes so you can get there um, that way. 
So previous episodes that would work really well with this one are series two, episode five, which I feel like I connect back to so much because we are often talking about land access on this podcast. Um, But it was Nick Hayes, The Book of Trespass. Series three, episode six, A, Jamie Ann Redway, Illustration in the Natural World. Series three, episode eight, A, Chloe Valerie Harmsworth, Nature Inspired Creativity. Series four, episode 10A, Elizabeth Gleave, Restoring the Earth Through the Arts. And I didn't realise until Ellen mentioned it, but she's also on the Land Art Agency website. So um, yeah, that was a really nice random connection, which I didn't realise existed until we started talking. I love how that happens. Um, And then finally, series five, episode 2A, Amy Jane Beer, The Flow, because again of the conversation that we have around land access. Please do sign up for my Substack newsletter if you haven't already. And if you'd like, you can join me in the paid subscription where you'll get all the usual offerings like weekly writing prompts, the discussion board, um, prompt by nature updates every six weeks, plus 10% off all online courses. I've got a few coming up, so I will let you know about those in due course. A free seasonal e-zine, sneak peeks into my works in progress and lots, lots more. It's well worth the £5 a month, I promise. (laughs) Uh, Come and find me over on the website where you can find all of the events, my blog, past episodes and links to the Substack newsletter, as well as the Prompted by Nature bookshop. On Instagram, I'm prompted.by.nature. Facebook, it's prompted by nature. And Twitter, I'm prompted x nature. Remember that the writing prompt for this episode will be up on Tuesday. Until next time, I'm sending lots of love and creativity. Happy writing and I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Um, So I'm Ellen or Ellen Manon, um, as a lot of people know me, and I'm a freelance illustrator living in Cornwall at the moment, which is where I did my studies two years ago. I graduated, um, but originally I'm from Wales and I'm hugely inspired by the landscape of both countries, but the landscape of the UK and outside of that as well and the stories that the land has to tell and the wildlife that we see as well when we're out interacting with these landscapes and environments. I definitely want to talk about your artwork and your inspiration but before we do can you kind of go back a little bit and Mm -hmm. just talk about how you got to this point how you went from whatever you started on to now being a, a freelance illustrator with I might add lots of work on lots of covers of books and I'm going to say this to the listeners I actually didn't realize when I approached you to interview <laughs> you that you did the cover of Rebecca's book yes, so I yes. a few episodes ago I was looking on your website and I was like oh okay and then I was just like oh of course of course it is so yeah how did how what was your journey as a creative um I mean it's such a cliche to say like oh I've always been creative drawing since childhood but you know that that is the truth that's how it all started and um um was creative all the way through school and a large part of that I have to say goes to the encouragement of my parents um because it was something that I really enjoyed doing but in school and in the education system there's not a lot of emphasis placed on um the arts I mean primarily in my school there was a lot of emphasis on drama and music because it was a Welsh school but the the art itself wasn't really seen as something that you could progress with and take to a career standard level so 
even you know at GCSE at A level I was like oh am I gonna take it as a subject and my parents were like Ellen you love it <laughs> you should so I did um and then initially I was going to study at Exeter to do history and archaeology and then decided last minute to do an art uh, foundation in Cardiff again my parents were like Ellen you can take a year out and <laughs> and do what you actually love doing and uh, see where that goes so it was being in that environment where having a lot of space to um, create and experiment and being around lots of other creative people and not just a small handful in my art class in school and having people around me saying like these are you know these are the ways that you could go with this creativity with this you know this thing that you have um, and then that yeah led me to going to university <clears throat> down in here in Falmouth where I live now and study illustration for three years um, and then it just kind of just stepping stones from there I, I, I finished that degree and and found what it was that really drove me which I think I always knew which was stories and nature and landscape and just kind of hone that into my freelance practice now and that is you know my, my focus of my creativity in terms of what it is I create subject matter wise and I wonder about your as you were speaking I was thinking about you know your style and you have a very distinctive way like when I was I was kind of looking at your website again just a minute ago and I was thinking as I kind of always thought from seeing what you create there is something so it's it's so grounded and very much you know you can see that love of nature and the landscape and also the people that inhabit those spaces I think but there's something so also so ethereal about what you mm. create like it's like stepping into another realm almost like do you know what I mean how how did that develop have you always drawn in that way and what work did you do to develop your style um well first of all thank you very much for saying all of that lovely stuff um it's it's you never truly know sometimes how people interact with your artwork unless you get a direct message through a website or Instagram so to hear that face well screen to screen if not face to face um to hear how what someone draws from my artwork is yeah it's really important for me to hear and know that other people see kind of what in my mind is being put into it um have I always drawn like this I mean style naturally develops um and I've always experimented with with media and texture and color and see what I could bring in from the landscape around me into my artwork and the stories as well um so that's always been a constant development and then I did go digital and sort of the later part of um, my studies at uni because that seemed to be a thing that a lot of people doing I was like I'll never be a digital artist I don't understand how any of it works um, but then I did transfer to digital but I always wanted to keep that that kind of emotion and, and that feel of kind of traditional tools as it were and traditional methods and um, it bring that into my artwork I didn't want it to seem like it was a clean cut thing which there's obviously a place for that as well but it, that's not what felt natural to me um, and in terms of etherealness um I just think I've always had in me since little that love for 
stories and storytelling and just bringing that into my artwork somehow and with you know even if it's just an image of a familiar landscape around here on the coast path weaving something in that whether it's a literal story of that place um that's grounded in that place or just adding a couple of details that will allow whoever's looking at this artwork to kind of make up their own story and put themselves in that place is something that I always strive to do whether that's like a little figure or a little pathway there's adding some kind of narrative into that scenery I think is something that I've always tried to achieve in my artwork or, or bring in um I was just thinking so then it almost becomes like yes it's something that's coming from your imagination but it becomes like a almost like a conversation between you and the viewer because yeah. you're putting in these kind of details and I feel like it's opening up a conversation between the viewer and the and the picture because they're able to create their own stories from what mm -hmm. you've from what you've created. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. It does. It super makes sense. And I think when I create artwork, because that element is in my mind of that conversation and that story, I'm not necessarily creating a piece just for me myself to look at and yes it might be going out there in the world digitally or in some form or another but initially it's just for myself I think for me when I create is always about that sharing aspect and that sharing of a story and that sharing of a place because I connect with these places and I want other people to be able to connect with them too even if, if they've never been or even if it's a completely imaginary landscape there's something in it I hope for everyone who has an interest or a shared passion in a similar environment and and those stories that are held there mm. how much of yourself do you put in the pictures in in the sense of like because I wonder if it's similar to kind of writing where you know you you are you are sharing a piece of yourself when you're mm -hmm. when I'm, I'm just thinking about myself when I'm writing something I'm kind of sharing a piece of myself but I wonder how much of yourself you're sharing in what you're creating and also if if there has to be or you feel that there's like a uh not a boundary but and not a wall but whether you sort of are conscious of how much you put into a piece of yourself you know like not not giving too much I it's something that I've talked about with um a couple of people before and that that boundary but also that knowing of are you putting part of yourself into what you create should not should you be of course you should be it's your art but are you putting yourself into it how much of it are you putting yourself into when does it become I do find sometimes within myself when I create of course I create for the joy of creating and I create these pieces because I want to um but it's also, especially in a digital age, it's being careful that you don't sort of tiptoe towards that line of, I need to create, I need to put something out there because I need people to continue interacting. And especially when you're um, self-employed and, you know, this is my career, this is how I make my living, whether that's through um, 
commissions or some of the artworks that I create, which I then go on to sell as prints, there is that element sometimes in the back of my mind of, I, you know, I'm earning money from this as well. It's, it's, and that's a balance and it's not, um, it's not a consistent balance. You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes there's good months, sometimes there's bad months. So it's, I want to continue putting myself into it and to my artwork, but taking that space to experiment with what that means and experiment with um, pieces that maybe I don't always put out there. Um, and, but, but, but yeah, allowing that space for myself to put myself into my artwork, which I do already, but I don't even know within myself to how, to what extent, how much of myself I'm putting into it. I'm putting my love and experience into it, especially when they're landscapes, um, that are where, where I have been and stories that I know or have learned from these places. So in that sense, I've been there. I've, I've taken in my surroundings there. I've felt love for that place, felt a connection to that place. And then I'm putting that back into what I create. Um, and I feel like I do do that all the time. It's just, I, I don't know in myself how deep I go. Um, and that's still something that I'm trying to figure out and I'm still trying to figure out you know that that having that space and allowing myself that time to experiment and and really see where it is that I'm putting myself into the artwork mm. if any of that makes sense yeah no, it does. <laughs> I, I was just thinking about how sometimes I mean I'm just speaking from experience sometimes that drive to keep putting things out there like you say especially in a digital age mm. where everything is being shared and there's this mm. constant like you have to post on your Instagram and get all the likes and put stuff here and put stuff there it can be so constraining and constrictive to like creativity so I guess it's like finding that balance between what you physically can do and want and want to do and doing enough to like you say make a living like because yes. you know, being realistic yeah a hundred percent that um yeah but figuring out the 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 time and the, the energy that you're putting into work that will be seen and will potentially be bought if that's the direction you take that artwork in or commissions and then not feeling guilty about taking time to explore your creativity away from that world I think that is something that I um I don't know if struggle's the right word but it's something I butt heads against with sometimes of of like being like okay I want to have a day actually where I just want to paint and I haven't done that for quite a while and allowing myself to be creative that is separate to what I put out there and that's not to say that I don't enjoy doing or putting out there what I do for people to see I want people to see I want people to feel a connection to it if they do um but it's trying yeah not feeling guilty about exploring and taking it in another direction in your own time and um but yeah that's something I'm still kind of like working through a bit it's all like a learning curve like I've been doing this as a career for a couple of years and that was straight out of uni so it's it's in some ways it's like I haven't really I don't stopped I don't know but I enjoy it <laughs> I don't want people to think that I don't absolutely love what I do and it's a huge privilege that I can do what I do and 
and be in a position where I can currently you can can I I can afford it. Um, I realize there are a lot of people who are very creative, but for whatever reason, you know, perhaps don't have the access that they need or the time that they need or the 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 financial sort of support that they need to be able to really pursue that, whether that's um, as something that they do in their own time or whether it's a career. So I do not. Um, what's the word? I, well, I've, I value what I do <laughs> and I enjoy yeah, yeah. what I do, but it's also knowing when to kind of not step back from that world, but just putting that other time aside to create mm. and not, and it's for you and you only. Mm. I think it's that's like, what I want to say. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> that messy time, isn't it? Like allowing yeah. things to just, because you, you, it, the thing with the arts, I think, is it comes from experimentation. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what we see kind of in the world now is the result of er experimentation, but it's almost viewed as being um, not so, you know, you see somebody's finished product and then you think, oh, well, that's that's just what they do when they sit down. That's just what comes out. But actually that comes from years of training and experience and practice and yeah, it's so important to put that time aside for nobody's expectations, not even your own, you know? Yes, exactly. Uh, and what you were just saying about that whole, that build-up of, you know, the final product isn't just the final product, it's so, or not product, but the final artwork isn't just that. It, it's all the years that came before that. And again, that's something that I forget about. Um, you know, there are certain, especially with landscapes, you know the I've become better and quicker at drawing and replicating what I see onto a like a digital canvas and I sometimes I forget that even though I'm in some ways very aware of that creative journey in myself um, I do forget that of course when I'm creating that artwork it's not just something that's been created then and there it's something that's built up over time. And as well, when it when it comes to commission work and remembering it's not just the time that you're putting into a piece when it comes to figuring out, um, you know, commission rates, which is something I still, I'm like, oh God, I don't know. Like, yeah. can I really charge this? It is such a minefield sometimes, even now. And I hope one day I'll get it. Um, but realizing as well in that moment, then I'm not just being paid for my time. I'm being paid for the piece. And the reason that this artwork can exist is because I've experimented and I've spent these years building up to it. And it's all of that is still in that piece. And yeah, it's remembering that as well. And that is something that I sort of forget or take for granted sometimes, which is silly because I know the work that's gone into getting to that stage, but um, it's, easy to forget sometimes when you're in the moment of doing it I think mm. yeah and I think that kind of goes along with the whole creatives and artists being valued in that way mm -hmm. because I think often it's like you know oh will you do will you know will you write this or will you create this but then not going to pay you because mm -hmm. you know it's it's good publicity or whatever good exposure and it's it kind of goes hand in hand you know the more people that charge the more creatives and artists that charge what they're worth 
the easier it is for all the other creatives to do the same thing and for then people to value artists, writers, create all of that, you know? It's such an important, and, and I don't, I mean, I've always struggled in that sense. It's not, it, I don't think it, unless you're like, you're driven in that way and, and you're business minded. I think most people, I think most people <laughs> struggle with it. Um, but so just thinking about your kind of all the time and everything that you put into your pieces, what's your process? What's your kind of creative process? How do you go from initial idea and inspiration to the final completed piece that we we see um well of course it always all starts because it's what I'm inspired by um being out in the landscape in the natural world and um whether that's me seeking out inspiration or I just happen to be on a walk and I I love twisty trees. <laughs> I always put twisty windblown trees in my work. So I'll be like, oh, there's a nice tree over there. That's not that's a nice tree line. Or seeing different um parts in the landscape that I like to draw out um in my mind when I'm on a walk. And sometimes I'll sketch as well. And those sketches um of of the of those locations sketching there might turn into something. They might just stay in my sketchbook. Um but yeah the the first part of the creative process is of course being in that space that uh, inspires me um and then often that you know I take that space back with me in my mind that environment and sometimes I'll just stick to kind of drawing that landscape and weaving my own kind of ideas of stories into it in some form or another or I might do research about that area and see what folklore might be attached um especially when you have quite obvious landmarks, like the tours that you might get on the moors of Bodmin or, or in Dartmoor and, and standing stones and ancient sites. And so I might go back and do a bit of research about these places or, or the area of that land in general, and then start to weave the ideas together of the landscape of what we see and then the stories that are embedded in there that have been passed down through generations, through oral storytelling. Um, and once I've kind of sort of gathered those ideas together, I start sketching out the potential of what will be um, and playing around um, just kind of rough, rough, messy sketches. <laughs> um, and it's quite funny. I think I need to share more of that, really. I have a couple of times before, but of sharing what I actually sketch out versus what it turns into because I might be like oh I'll put a bird there and I just kind of do a squiggle in the sky or like oh I'm gonna put this kind of ethereal figure here and I'm just like Ooh. <laughs> and uh, sketch that in very roughly and then I start um, building up from there and I start building up layers and the the land is what I always start with first that's always my base and building up those those textures and those colors and trying to create that that depth that you do actually see um you know nothing's really depending on lighting nothing's flat necessarily when you, you know, when you look at it nothing's 2d and when you create a piece of art of course you're creating it on a 2d canvas you're not unless you're a 3d creative as it were so it's trying to create that depth within essentially a flat image and for me like texture and colour is so important to that. So that's what I start with first, is the land itself. Um, 
in the landscape and then once I've got that established I build up from there I add features um, whether that be my the love that I have for twisty trees or, or certain rocks or pathways or, or little figures um, and they sort of help ground the landscape so they're their own thing within it but they're not dwarfed by the landscape neither is the landscape overtaken by what is placed in it they're all well I try anyway to make it all equal in some way they all connect they all are together they are all one and yeah so that's how it builds up for me I think and I love that you say that the landscape is like that's the thing that you build on top of once that's established mm-hmm. everything else can can um can follow and that kind of it makes me think about my next question for you which is about your your own connection to nature but specifically kind of any earliest or really strong um memories that you might have of nature um or the natural world let's say and how that might have influenced your your style your work your creativity yeah I think I was definitely influenced um by my early years and you can be influenced at any point um but I went to a Steiner nursery for a couple of years, I think, um, when I was four and five. And then that integrated with my um, sort of standard state primary school. Um, but those couple of years, there are, there's so many moments I remember from Steiner nursery so well. Um, and of course, with Stein School and Montessori and so many of the and forest schools it is about being out in nature and playing outside and having that connection um so that was there from very early on and I remember as well um one teacher Kath who I absolutely thought the world of um she would she was usually our storyteller from what I remember again this is a four-year-old's memories um but we would, or she would bring objects from the outside. She'd bring like leaves and twigs and plants and flowers and mosses, bring them inside and then set them up on these low kind of stools or tables, which she would have covered in various colored fabric and create these incredible worlds where she'd tell stories and have these little felted or wooden figures that rode through this landscape. Um, so that is such a core memory for me, I feel. And being in a in a place of learning, in a place of play, that is so much about that connection with the outdoors. Um, and, and going to, I think on weekends, a lot of the, the Steiner lot and the parents and the kids, we'd go to this place called uh, Coyd Hills, um, which was like a, a farm from what I remember. And we do a lot of activities in the barn, like baking bread. But then we'd also go out into the woodlands and play there. And it was quite an artistic, there were people living in that community. So there were quite, you'd have like art installations within the woods as well. And some were really strange and a bit creepy, but it was, it was, it was there was such an integral connection to nature, I felt through all of those experiences. Um, so that was definitely a, a grounding, <laughs> a grounding for that inspiration, that connection. Um, but also going back to my parents again, because I always sing their praises. Um, <laughs> but they, they they enjoyed the outdoors. They love going on walks. So since I can remember, if I wasn't with my friends on a weekend, that's what we 
be doing. We'd be going, we'd be walking on the weekends if we went on holiday to Pembrokeshire or, or North Wales or other place or, you know, anywhere in England, it would usually be walking every day. That's what we're going to do. And I'm sure at some point, maybe when I got to early teenage years, there might have been a point where I was like, oh, I don't want to walk. But I can't remember feeling it that deeply. I think maybe I might have said things, but that was just because I thought, oh, that is we're at age and that's what everybody says at this age they don't want that connection but so there's outdoors has always been and nature and the landscape has always been a part of my life in some way and that's always been encouraged as well um and by the knowledge that my parents and other adults and people around me have about these places like you know just taking binoculars out on a walk when I was little and bird watching and doing this that and the other um so it's all that's always been that connection to land has always been there for me I think and always as well within my creativity like I think through school like landscape nature and some something fantastical something ethereal and those have been the two kind of major players in my creative journey since the beginning Mm. and when did the when did the kind of story storytelling element come in because you know you're from Wales which is rich in mm-hmm. folklore you now live in Cornwall which is you know like equally so like you just need to go to those places and visit like you said the stone circles and all those sorts of places just to be absolutely surrounded by it when did if if you can even remember a point or if there is a point or whether it was maybe just already there when did that sort of start to come in and how has the folklore of both of those places or any of those places kind of changed and shifted the way you've worked and gained inspiration over the years? I think, yeah, it is hard to pinpoint. Um, I think for some people, storytelling is something that if, you know, if you're fortunate to have like, you know, someone who you're, whether that's a parent or caregiver who will read stories with you from when you're born to, or a toddler, um, I feel that's such a, a natural thing. Uh, for some people, it, it stops after a point and then that sort of connection with story is, is dropped or, or goes missing and is refound again, perhaps. But for me, I don't think there's ever been a point where I haven't been around stories, whether that's through choice or not. Um, so, of course, parents would always read to me and then starting a school, as I said before, that, that whole connection with the, the, with nature and and storytelling and weaving that together um and in school as well the amount of so- stories that we hear and I think you, you do hear that across especially in primary schools you are always told stories but for us like as a Welsh school we'd learn a lot about um the Mabinogion, which is a collection of of Welsh tales, about eleven tales, um, and romance, and there's adventure and bravery and all of these. And the the collection itself is from like twelfth, thirteenth century, but the stories have obviously passed down over time through all traditions, so we're probably a lot older. But I remember learning about different tales of the Mabinogion in school and. Um, I think I remember an art project actually where we had to recreate one in a, a tapestry format, I think, or or some kind of yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, which was the story of um 
Bramwen Verchlir and Bendigeirfran. So um, Bramwen is the daughter of Llyr, who's a um, Welsh king. And um, she is then, she, she is given in marriage to um, an, the Irish king at the time. And so has to leave Wales and go across Cross the sea to Ireland and live there, and it's um, the story goes it was quite an, a neglected and abusive relationship that she had, and she ended up taming this starling, and asked the starling to send to fly across the Irish Sea back to her home in Wales, back to her brothers, um, to send them a message of please come and save me from this, and her eldest brother Bendigraven is a huge giant um so he can just walk through the irish sea and he lays his body down and the soldiers can cross as he were a bridge and um and he comes to save her and eventually has his head cut off um but <laughs> there are so many more elements <laughs> to that story it's quite i could go into it but so so yeah the storytelling was there from a young age through school and then because it i don't know at what point it became just my own passion and interest I don't know when that line kind of crossed from this is something we're being taught to this is something I want to learn and be a part of I yeah I can't remember when that bridge was crossed but it um yeah it's always um been there for me and then in terms of Wales and Cornwall and what they share for one thing the language is very similar like that, that's something I felt as soon as I moved down I felt very at home even though I've never um spoken or met anyone who can either speak it fluently or a bit you know the the signage and um little snippets of Cornish that you see written down in, in places in churches of like the Lord's Prayer is really similar to Welsh and I find that like language fascinating in terms of what that brings to stories um there's a lot of traditions as well as well that are similar um, like in wales you have a mary lloyd which translates to uh, the gray gray mare gray mary which is a, a horse's skull on a stick <laughs> and it's decorated and the person who carries the pole wears a sheet and that's um um a tradition that comes out around winter time and um it's like a wassail tradition almost so that the group of mummers um not mummers the, the 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 horse and the group of people that comes with the the horse um they go from door to door in in the village or the community and it's like a back and forth kind of verse and the idea is that if you let the Mary Lloyd in and you let the Mary Lloyd and her company eat and drink then you'll have good luck in your house for the rest of the year and there's I'm not sure how similarly it follows but in Cornwall um you have uh, a cassock norse which is like um the night horse nightmare and that as well is a horse's skull on um, a stick and that is again another winter tradition um not sure if it follows exactly the same pattern but there's so there's a lot of in terms of storytelling and traditions between Wales and Cornwall there's a lot that kind of weave into each other and I think because of that that Celtic connection as well you see a lot of those same stories and traditions um and as I, as I mentioned before with the the stone circles that you have at Brown Bodmin I mean stone circles and ancient sites across the UK you have similar stories but um 
there's the landscape here in many ways is similar um especially i think of uh north coast cornwall and pembrokeshire or just the coast in general in pembrokeshire i find it very similar so i don't know like within the landscape itself it seems like there's a shared connection and then through stories and traditions it seems like there's a shared connection and in the monuments you see and, and the celtic crosses and and yeah so and in terms of it changing or developing my artwork I wouldn't say it's changed it but I guess I've just learned even further or even more about these stories um that Cornwall has and that Wales has and I think I've I've just grown an even deeper appreciation for them I think being away from whether that's through schooling or being away from a place sometimes um if that whether that's your birthplace or your home place there's something about being away from it I find that allows your connection and appreciation for it to deepen and grow and therefore the culture and the language and the stories there your connection to it grows for me anyway um so that's what I feel about Wales and then I feel like that's kind of mirrored in Cornwall in terms of I've brought that connection with me and I can see that connection around me here through many different ways. Mm, yeah. And I was just thinking as you were speaking, um, on your website, you always have, and I think on your posts as well, you always have a Welsh and an English caption. Is that quite important to you to bring that that kind of... Uh, is to use the Welsh language, I suppose, because, um, yeah, I, I always, when I think of the Welsh, I always think of how proud they seem to be to be Welsh. And I think the language seems to, um, this is me speaking as, you know, an English person, an outsider. The The language is so, I used to live with a Welsh girl and she was fluent in in Welsh and and she was so proud of being of being fluent in Welsh and keeping the language alive. Is that quite an important thing to you to do? Yes, it really, really is. And like I was just saying, I think it's only through, not only, but all of my education was through Welsh. I spoke up Welsh with my mum at home. My friends are Welsh speakers and I didn't really think about it. And like the teachers would be like, it's so important that you're speaking Welsh and we'd have the history of of what has happened to the Welsh language over the years of how it declined, why it declined um, because of this idea that, well, yeah, it shouldn't be spoken and it is holding people back in their education and all this, that and the other. And then the resurgence of it. And so I knew that, but I don't think I really knew that. And I didn't fully appreciate the fact that I could speak Welsh and that there was this whole culture there that I was part of um because it was it was there it was there it was every day and it was only then when I um finished school and I, I moved from Cardiff down to here in Cornwall I was like oh, I don't there's no one here I can speak it to and it kind of just hit me and I think we were a course size of 160 and I think there were three of us from Wales and two of us were fluent um so we'd speak to each other a bit but we our kind of friendship circles were quite different so it was just it was just very odd and then I was like okay so now everything 
I'm writing is is in English. You know, I'd used I'd be used to doing all of my coursework and everything written apart from my English lessons in Welsh, and then all of a sudden that wasn't happening. And you know, that's not to say like, oh, I struggled writing in English. Like English is very prevalent everywhere, so it wasn't that that was the issue, but it was just that kind of change. And sometimes I'd just like write little notes for myself in Welsh anyway, like through my sketchbooks and things. Um, but yeah, so that's an even deeper appreciation for the language and for the culture and the heritage came from all of a sudden it wasn't there. And I think that's really sad as well. Like it's, I know it's not the same for everyone, regardless of whether it's this kind of topic of Welsh language and culture or something else, but it's just, I, some, I don't know, not, I don't know if annoyed is the right word, but it frustrates me, I think, sometimes. I think like, well, why didn't I appreciate it to the same level I do now when it was there? Like, why does something have to go for me to be like, oh, wow, like this is meaningful, important. And of course it hasn't gone, it's still there. It's just that I'm not in the space where it is necessarily. Um, so yeah, for me, it is, it is a large part it's, and it is important to me to be communicating my artwork through both Welsh and English. And I find that rewarding as well. I get messages like, oh, wow, what language is that? And I'm like, gosh, and they're like, oh, wow, that's so cool. And I've had a couple of messages before, like, oh, like reading, you know, reading your Welsh captions and, and seeing your artwork and has inspired me. I, I want to learn Welsh. So I'm doing a Welsh language course. And it's just like, that's amazing. <laughs> like, and so I think, yeah, it does mean a lot to promote the language. Um, because you know it's not spoken by the majority in Wales. I think it's I now I don't quote don't quote me on this because I haven't looked it up recently. I think it's about twenty five percent of the population speak it, but I don't know to what level that is in terms of if that's if you're fluent fluent or if you're learning to fluent. And mm -hmm. um, but so it, it, yeah, it's important to me to to keep it alive and to keep promoting it because it it, it did decline because of outside um powers the english um, yeah. <laughs> yeah a little bit um but i won't go into that. <laughs> but, but so yeah it is and it's uh, and that storytelling culture and and that love for music and drama mm. and poetry it's it's so rich and i know it seems i know it's like it could maybe it could seem stereotype like oh the Welsh love singing or the Welsh love music or that you know it's all about this, the bards and the storytelling but you you have the Eisteddfods which are held and you'd, you we'd have one in school as well every year and that's a time of, of celebrating you know various talents but you know a big part is music and poetry and all of this so it's very embedded in in um culture there, I think especially if you're you know within the, the Welsh education system as well um so for me it's important to like keep it in my alive my own little way down here whether that's through artwork that's inspired by the stories um or just by the landscape but always bringing language in and like when I do Instagram sort of stories a lot of the time I'll speak Welsh and I'll do English captions as well um because yeah, because I don't have a lot of people to speak it to down here. Actually, that's a lie. I now have met, I think there's like 
I don't know. There's like there's a there's 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 more people out there now in 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 Falmouth <laughs> who are Welsh speakers um, that I can connect to. So that's good. Yeah. I just I think they're all kind of there, but nobody we don't know that each other's mm-hmm. there. And it's through mutual friends. Like oh, I've got a Welsh friend, and then we're like oh, find each other. We're like oh my god, we can speak to each other. <laughs> oh, I love that. Exciting. It's very yeah. exciting because you're not in you're not in Wales. Um, you're not in a Welsh school, you're not in a Welsh community, you're somewhere completely different that has a shared kind of history, but the language isn't spoken there. And then you meet someone who speaks Welsh as well, and you're like, oh my God, this is <laughs> I was just thinking that it feels like those things are so connected for you and in what you create. And I do feel like that comes through. And I was just, I don't know if it's the colour of your jumper, so orange. kind of wearing like a burnt orange well it looks kind of like a burnt orange jumper from here but I kind of saw you as like a fire keeper almost like there's this fire of everything like the Welsh landscape the language the stories and you're there like tending that fire through what you're creating and every time you create something you're getting like a stick you're lighting the end of it with a bit of the fire and you're kind of passing it on for somebody else. Do you know what I mean? I know that sounds really cheesy, but that's kind of what I saw when you were talking was you're just passing bits of that fire around and it's going around the world and it's reminding you and all of us that these stories are alive, that this language is alive, that this landscape is alive. And it's about sharing that aliveness and that connection Wow, that's such a beautiful image. I don't know what to. Oh, I've never ever thought of myself in that way before, and I don't know if I can take on that role in my mind. But um, thank you for saying that because that is a a wonderful, really beautiful way to look at it. Um, I think it's always hard to know like what your place is as a creative or just as someone who is sharing something out there in the world. You can't really always see where it's going or how people are interacting with it. So, as I said, I think right at the start of this, like to hear what people think and not necessarily of me, but ju- just of the artwork and how that spreads is just really, I don't know, it's just, it's just really nice to hear <laughs> that it's going somewhere, you know, yeah. and it's not like my studio, as you can see, is my bedroom, <laughs> this is where I work. Um, so it's going from a studio bedroom to the world via my website or Instagram mm-hmm. or sitting I have done a couple of exhibitions and stuff before so it's going from that out into the world and you don't really know what's going on with it and then sometimes you get a bit of feedback and it's like wow okay <laughs> that's really cool <laughs> but I think that's why it's so nice to to speak to I know that's why I love speaking to artists and creatives because I think often you know as somebody that's reading or looking or whatever it is observing it's really easy to just say oh isn't that beautiful oh it feels like this but when you actually get to speak to a person everything just is contextualized and you see what goes into that and and it yeah it just brings it alive and yeah that's that's why I think bringing voices like yours forward is really important just as a kind of within the creative space because quite often creatives can be very unsung you know like you don't necessarily get your moment um because 
it's a it's a quiet process you know whatever it is you're creating it's quite a quiet process unless it's like drama or act you know like those sorts of arts but if it's writing or painting or being a sculptor or whatever you you're very unseen quite often I think yes yeah or at least unseen by yourself mm. I know that sounds really deep but um yes no I completely agree yes yeah. you're because like I said you don't know really what's happening when that artwork gets put out there um but you're right also in in unseen in terms of voice because there's only so much you can say when you're writing something up on a website or something on Instagram or or you actually are talking to someone but that might be again just through Instagram stories or it just in little snippets and I think it really does make it can really well not all the time but it, I think it can make a difference you know knowing to a degree the artist that's behind the artwork and what inspires them and having those talks with them um like of course as well you can have artwork you can have a piece and that can be enough and you can draw from it what you see in it and there might be things that the artist has put in it which you can see and that you know in itself it can be enough more than enough um but there's something then I think about interacting with the person who's created it it does it does change things because you you understand different things in a different way or, or things perhaps that you hadn't seen um and you know it's, it's not necessary to not necessary to have that established or that connection with the creator in order to enjoy what's been created but it does add something to it I find like when I you know there, there are artists that I follow um here who are local and that, you know, Falmouth Cornwall is a small, small place that like a creative community is, you know, tight knit and that in that everybody does know everybody. Um, so having those conversations and a relationship of some form or connection with that person outside of their work, because you're knowing them and you can see how, what, how much of themselves and what they are putting into what they create. And it just gives you like a newfound appreciation for it and seeing how they work as well. Mm. Um, like I've got a friend who's a, a ceramicist and I've always like appreciated not just his work, but the work of other ceramicists. And, mm -hmm. um, but a couple of friends and I did um, like a, a workshop with him the other week um, as part of a friend's birthday present. And, you know, just learning how to throw properly and seeing that what, what we'd, struggle over a three-hour time period to create some form of pot like you can make in the space of 10 minutes or less and it, it's just it's there's that appreciation is already there and then seeing that process from the beginning to the end and also just having a connection to that person it's like wow yeah like there there, there is so much work and love that goes into it which you knew you didn't know no <laughs> until you saw it or interacted um yeah 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 I agree um so I'm conscious of time um I think I feel like we've covered so much this has been such an <laughs> amazing conversation um and there's a couple of questions I was going to ask but I think we've sort of sort of covered them in in what what else we've sort of talked about um but so I'll finish off with the two questions that I kind of ask everybody. So the first one is, um, 
one lesson i know that i know it's a pro life is a process and lessons are ongoing but if there's one lesson that you've learned or are learning um in your journey that you would like to share with others i think there are <laughs> so many different little paths of this that i could follow um and it's something that i think about anyway sometimes like what lessons i've learned um but this is one that I'm learning and I still sort of come back around to quite frequently, but it's don't, and I don't mean this to sound cheesy either, but it's don't doubt your creativity and what it is that you can do. Um, I definitely have moments of like, oh, okay, it, you know, what am I really doing here? I'm creating these things. Is it making a difference on an individual or a slightly bigger scale? Like what's it doing? And I think obviously, big part of that is you can't always see and so it is really hard to know but um yeah it, it don't yeah don't underestimate what you can do with it and what other people can um learn from it and what you can inform people with it whether that's you know for example I might just do some really nice landscapes that have got some stories attached to them or I might do something that's um a bit more specific um say an illustration of an endangered bird and I attach the folklore to it and and the facts of it and it, it, people can really learn from what you put out there so don't doubt that it is having an effect in some ways but that's a lesson I'm continuing to learn but it's having conversations like this um and speaking to people one-on-one -on -one that isn't just a little comment on Instagram or a little little email of having a proper conversation of realizing what people do find in the creativity you've put out there and what they take away from it and how that inspires them and what they might do with that um whether that's to explore your surroundings I, i'd love if that's what some people felt when they looked at my work would be like oh landscapes that looks great nature looks great let's go out <laughs> and explore it um but yeah in short don't doubt what you're creativity can do mm. I think it's a it's a constant reminder as well something you have to keep reminding yourself of um, and I love that thought of someone seeing your work and going oh doesn't nature look good doesn't <laughs> landscape look good aren't these stories interesting um, yeah I guess that's the power of it um, and then this one can be big it can be small it could be individual to you or it could be kind of more global um, when you envision a future that you would like to see, what does it look like? <laughs> so many things that I would love for our future, um, not just mine. Um, but I think, so clearly for me, my big inspiration, not just in creativity, but in life and what's important to me is nature is the outdoors is the wildlife is the environment so what I would like to see is a much huge greater access for people to be in these spaces um, a right to roam um, not having these huge swathes of land which are owned by individuals and you can't access because they're like well I'd like to release my pheasants on here um, because for me having that physical and emotional connection with these places 
is what inspires me to want to protect it. And I think there is such a disconnect for so many people, not of their own volition, to nature and to these wild spaces. Um, and that comes from not having the access to it. Like you might have a few green parks in a city, but, and that, you know, that could be from, you live in a city and there's not a lot of green space. You might even live out in the countryside, but the majority of the land surrounding you is privately owned and you don't have access to it. And some people can love a place without ever being there and feel that passion, that drive to preserve it. But I found for me personally, and I think for many others, it's actually being in that place physically is where you build a stronger relationship with it. And I think considering the kind of, the state that a lot of nature is in a lot of these habitats are in um and what's being done to them we need people to be able to be in these spaces to strengthen and build that relationship and connection with nature in order to kind of find that drive and that urgency to preserve it and protect it and embrace it and celebrate it as well um so yes greater access <laughs> greater access to all to nature is basically what i'd love to see not for like a future in 10 years 20 years mm -hmm. ideally like tomorrow but yeah yes <laughs> i know it's not going to happen as soon as that but you know sooner rather than later for a few yeah. years I think that's such a big one isn't it and it goes so deep because it's i i always feel like it's not just about i think a big part of it is about people having access and and you know you protect what you love but it's also that it's almost like that re-education of the people that own the land that it that people aren't going to ruin it like you know mm. whatever whatever awful thing you think is going to happen if you let people wild camp on Dartmoor or whatever it is whatever awful thing you think is going to happen is not going to happen it's never happened before or if it has maybe it's like one tiny instance once, I don't know, but it's probably never happened before. And just stop shooting your grouse. Like just <laughs> stop breeding birds to shoot. Like it doesn't make, you know, I could, there is no horse high enough. <laughs> I, I, like I, I could go on. I could yeah. have a whole conversation about that all day, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's just very frustrating. And, you know, usually it will be, well, this happened. Yeah. We had these group of people. And it's like, yeah, and I don't, I don't disagree that, for, you know, maybe some people did, were a bit more destructive or non-caring and left stuff behind, whether that's wild camping or walking or whatever. But just because you have a small incident like that, or maybe it's happened a couple of times, doesn't mean that everybody else mm -hmm. should be banned or yeah. not allowed to do that thing. And yeah, as we said, you're just shouting, you're shout, yeah, shoot, shouting, shooting pheasants, breeding yeah. bears to shoot. And then you don't eat a lot of them necessarily. Yeah. Like they just, they're either like roadkill or they just end up in a pit in the ground. Mm -hmm. and yeah. It's all very perverse. <laughs> but also I think a lot of, I think people who do leave rubbish or whatever, wouldn't do it if they had more access to land and understood the, mm. the destructiveness of leaving rubbish behind and stuff like that uh, anyway yeah I think so too and and also it's like the concentration of people that's the thing it's like mm. so with Dartmoor it, it was the only place that you could legally wild camp in all of Wales and England mm. and I'm sure that there were a few incidences where 
I think I heard like maybe during lockdown there are a couple of mm. incidents where people weren't respecting yeah that space and that place and what was there and that does happen I'm not arguing against that but the thing is as well when you've only got one place mm. where people can go everything's just heightened and you've got yeah, this yeah. huge concentration and like you said for me I believe as well that it's through having the access and interacting in these spaces that you learn yeah okay I don't leave stuff here or this is how I protect it this is how I respect it mm-hmm. and you know there's always going to be some people in the world that might not get it but that's you know that shouldn't mean that everybody else should be cut off from that mm-hmm. connection before we finish I would love you to tell people where they can find you where they can buy your work where they can um yeah see all the things and and just keep updated with your with your work um okay well I've got my Instagram and my website so my Instagram is Ellen Manon illustration um yeah that's that (laughs) and um that's relatively regular in terms of what I update and and then I also have my website which is ellen-manon.com um and then that has links to my shop and commission projects that I've worked on as well as um just what I showcase on Instagram of personal work as well so there's a there's a way you can find me I'm also on the land art website as well actually um oh cool yeah I was listening to the episode with Elizabeth yeah um but obviously my main information is on the other two but I'm on that as well (laughs) oh thank you um yeah, it just leaves me to say thank you so much for agreeing to come on. I, I've absolutely loved getting to know you a little bit and and how you work and your process and, and your inspiration and stuff. It's just, it's yeah, it's been wonderful. Well, likewise, like, it's just so, ah, it's just like I was saying, it's like I never really get to have these conversations with people I'm either don't know or have a mm. minor interaction with online. Mm-hmm. So it, it is nice to delve in deeper and it's been really, really fun talking to you. Thank you.